This is episode 20, The Secret to Making Hit Records. My guest today is Joe Solo, who's known for developing Macy Gray. He's worked with Fergie, Shiny Toy Guns, Arika Badu, and Shinedown, to name just a few. We compare notes about the psychology of producing and share some of our favorite music and films, including the movie Interstellar. This is the Language of Creativity Podcast. So, Joe, what do you have for breakfast? Well, first I listened to a little Hans Zimmer, and then I put on some EDM that I'm working on, and then I listened to the two songs that helped me really wake up and get into the day. And that is Night Fever by the Bee Gees. Oh, nice. <laughs> and Hell's Bells. Oh, wow. <laughs> from ACDC. Rock. That's what I had for breakfast for my ears. That's why I put my ears for breakfast. Yeah, so you have an ear routine in the morning. Does that ever vary or is it always the same? Well, typically in the morning, I'll put on some kind of non musical thing like maybe a debate from YouTube or some kind of talk because if I'm going to be working on music like all day long I typically in my off time don't want to listen to music yeah you got to pace yourself but sometimes I need to just get that extra adrenaline kick that only music can give you and so I'll put on you know some of those songs I mentioned and those seem to do the job <laughs> Although lately also there's this um there's this EDM group called Infected Mushroom. They're, oh, pretty, cool. they're pretty big in the EDM world and they really have a good sense of arranging and orchestration, which I think is missing from EDM music in general. Yeah. And so they stand out as not only sounding cool, but interesting. When you have you know, good orchestration, good arrangement should maintain a listener's interest throughout the duration of the song. Right. And uh, they have achieved that by the practice of constantly introducing new elements to the song, sometimes in very obvious ways and sometimes in very subtle ways that are only felt. Right. But, but this is the key to maintaining listener interest. It's, a, it's a, something that I follow religiously when producing. And so when I hear somebody else doing it too, I'm extra excited. I don't think I ever shared this with you, but I had an intern whose friend worked for DARPA and researched sound. And cool. what they found out was that in order to give your brain something to do, something should be changing. I think it was like every 10 seconds or less. Well, here's, here's evolutionarily if that way, evolutionarily, <laughs> um, in order to survive when we're back in the caveman days, our eyes and ears have to be tuned in to change because the little rustling in the bush off to the side might be a tiger waiting to jump out and kill you. Right. So the brain has evolved to be sensitive to changes in the environment. Right. Now, film and video editors learned this about two decades ago. And yeah, that's around the, the advent fast, of MTV. Yeah, the fast 
cutting, fast editing style that's prevalent in, in film and TV now is done for that very reason is with the constant change in camera angle and well, in anything, any kind of dynamic, the sound and the combination of them, the tone of the acting, it pulls you in on that deep, deep evolutionarily level. And the same goes for music. Yeah, absolutely. With music. Well, that was kind of what we were looking at today. My brother's little top secret uh, camera project. Uh, it was cool to uh, to notice that you know things are kind of flying out at you uh, in in unusual ways that you wouldn't normally get with a regular camera. What did you think of that? Well, it was really cool, and also um, you're right. And uh, I just want to point out, it's not top secret anymore. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, there's a certain it's middle secret now. <laughs> there's a certain marketing factor that goes into saying something's top secret. You yeah. Know, sharing a little bit, but not too much, getting people I, curious. I know, I know you know I all about that, that as well. I, I know because, you know, I, I, I write blogs and send out tips and write articles. And, you know, I try and stay away from any of the, you know, nine secrets of top producers or something <laughs> like that. And I'm like, well... They're not really secrets. <laughs> <laughs> You'll never believe what they're, they're going to say. That's uh, like clickbait know, 101. <laughs> but, uh, you know, if they're, you know, but uh, yeah, the sec- the word secrets markets well, I suppose. Yeah. But um, now why is that? You're a pretty uh, intellectual guy. You seem to have a deep thinking about this topic. Why is that? Uh, I mean, who doesn't want to hear somebody else's secrets? <laughs> right. I got a secret for you. You're instantly drawn in. Right. Hey, let me, you know what? Let me tell you a little secret about making hit records. Would you like to hear that? Everybody says, yes, Joe, we want to hear that. Are you interested? That's why we tuned in. Are you interested? Here's, here's the secret. Write great songs. (laughs) Now, I don't know if that's really a secret or not, but that is the truth it's the uh, truth, I mean, and everything to do starts so with the songwriting. Requires a lifetime of of craftsmanship. Yeah, yeah, or or collaboration with someone who has a lifetime, lifetime of, of craftsmanship, craftsmanship, which is a great way to learn and also a great way to leverage your position within the industry. Yeah, well, you know, I've actually stopped calling songwriting uh, talent and started calling it a craft. Because I think out of all the things that are done within the field of performing music, uh, musical whatever you want to call it, it feels to me like songwriting is something that you get better at over time. The more songs you write, the more you hone that skill. As if you were oh, like, yeah. maybe woodworking crea- requires creativity as well, but there's still a manual skill of chiseling that wood into some sort of form. And I think songwriting's not very different. Yeah, I, everything gets better with practice. And I mean, I'm sure everyone listening to this has made a song or did a recording and then a year later they listen to it and they're like, Oh man, I'm so much better now than a year ago. Even I can hear what I'm capable of now versus what I was capable of then. And then, you know, I, that's how I feel. Uh, what I thought was like really well created material back in, you know, from 10 years ago, I, I cringe sometimes <laughs> it, like, oh, if I knew then what I know now, I could have really brought that one in, mm-hmm. you know, and, and even, even if a song did really well 
on the radio, I still hear constantly opportunities for improvement that I didn't hear back then. And that's, and that is a sign that improvement has occurred. And we've all experienced that kind of thing mm-hmm. where you play some material for somebody that's older and someone listening will be like, Oh, I really love it. And you almost feel embarrassed. Like, Oh no, I'm, <laughs> I'm capable of so much more now. I mean, I, know uh, I exactly wish you could hear, you should, hear, you should hear if I had done that song now, it would be that much better. Yeah. But you know, um, so safe That's to say, safe to say that perfectionism is, is certainly something that you uh, deal with at times. Yeah, and there's a double-edged sword. I mean, in general, perfectionism is pretty evil because it will make you crazy. But at the same time, especially with automation, you can achieve perfectionism in your mixes without having to maintain anything. And what I'll explain what I mean by that this is what I love about recording is like, if you're trying to lose weight, not only do you have to lose the weight, but you have to keep it off. Right. So it requires additional maintenance. Mm -hmm. But once you've dialed in your mix to perfection, it doesn't take any additional effort to maintain that perfection, (laughs) you know? Yeah. So I think in most realms in life, perfectionism is, is pretty tough thing to deal with and and i do deal with that but in the recording studio or i should say in the mixing process it's really worth the extra effort to take your material and really just do the best possible job you can with it it comes to mind as the stories of mike michael jackson who was notoriously hard on himself and worked his ass off all the time. Could sit there for like 15 hours and just sit at a console and just work on something. Oh. Prince, same thing. Yeah, and and now now we have like lots of really cool plugins that can achieve effects with a couple clicks that years and years ago you had to spend 12 hours setting up. I've done it. I know what you know? you're talking about, yeah. Like, uh, like on Dark Side of the Moon, in the song Us and Them, they have this really long us, echo. Us, 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 us and, and them, them. them. Yeah. And to have it just on those words, on the us and the them and not the word and. Yeah. And to have for that time, which was such a long delay, they didn't have any digital delays. And <laughs> they actually had to record it and then have the tape run across a long room. And then there was another recorder with the reed head and that would give you the delay and then it would feed back into itself to get the read like read, write, Yeah. Yeah. And read and write. But the length of the delay was determined by how long, how much space was between the two machines with the tape <laughs> running in. And sometimes it was across the room and then you had to make sure that the tension of the tape between the two machines was, was like as good as possible. Yeah. And it's, it's never, it couldn't be perfect back then, which is kind of in a way good kinda because good. it gives you this sort of organic thing. Yeah. Whereas now like a digital delay, a lot of them are too perfect, but there are some newer ones that have come out in the last couple of years that actually you can put in some randomization and some, some warble and some tape warp and, 
and ebb and flow. Some accidental and, goodness, and, I guess, yeah. And yeah, it's, it's, it's purposeful, accidental goodness. <laughs> yeah, well, and you know, it strikes me that uh, music making and sound used to be a lot more based in physics when you were dealing with electronics and signal flow and, and, and electrons moving through wires and sound in a room and how that echoed and the weird tones that it made. Well, that's still the case when you're capturing something live, especially like uh, if you're cutting live drums, you've got, you know, anywhere from four to maybe 18 or 19 microphones and you're dealing with phase cancellation issues all over the place and which is when a sound comes on top of itself but in reverse and then nullifies a certain frequency right for those yeah like if i if if the drummer hits a snare drum the the mic right at the head of the snare picks it up right away the mic the overheads that are capturing the cymbals will also pick up that snare but it'll pick it up you know maybe 20 milliseconds later right and then the room mics are going to pick it up as much as a third of a second or, you know, 333 milliseconds later. And this can create phase issues. And uh, those have to be dealt with. And uh, the way I deal with them is actually I will take each individual drum track and literally move it backwards in time or forwards in time as need be to align all the microphones as if they all captured their sound simultaneously. Right. And that brings out a lot of clarity in the drums. And it takes a real seasoned ear to, to dial that in. So there, there's still some physics involved. Mm-hmm. And um, that's why they call, that's why they used to call, <laughs> that's where the term audio engineer came from. There was a certain amount of actual math. That was involved, certainly actual engineering. Yeah, yeah, because you have to look at the length of the the wavelength, the actual. I was actually writing writing an article uh, for a book on production that I'm writing about bass management this morning, and um, one of the tips I put in it was that when you're recording the kick drum, not only do you have the two mics on the kick, one for the beater, and one for the other head, or maybe you have one inside the drum. Uh, but also because bass frequency wavelengths are much longer than treble frequency wavelengths, to capture an entire single wave, you set up a microphone anywhere from like five to eight feet from the kick drum directly in front of it, maybe like, you know, two feet off the ground. Yeah. And that adds a certain fatness to the kick that you can't get by adding EQ. Because 50 hertz has had a chance to develop by that point. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Because the wavelength of 50 hertz is what, like a box truck or even a maybe a semi-truck trailer in length? I forget what well, the math well, is. It depends on which frequency. Yeah. But um, this is one of my secret. <laughs> this, is, this, is one of, this, that's actually, this actually is one of my secret sauces. All right, to get a really present sounding live drum sound. And you could probably apply this to other instruments you're recording live as well, is uh, uh, the studios where I record drums at are really big. And they usually have a bathroom somewhere down the hallway. And I'll stick a mic in the bathroom 
leave the door open and this distant mic captures the entire drum set from far away. And when you add that in, it adds this certain live dimension that's really important to capture because nobody listens to a drum set with their ear right on the drum, like, the, right. like where the mics are. You hear it from a distance. Yeah. So uh, to capture the sound of distance and then add that in to your drum mix brings a huge present feeling of liveness to it. And that's, well, and it's that's the same secret sauce. It's for the same drums. for some reason, bathrooms just have really appealing acoustics. That's why people like to sing in the shower. I don't really understand it, but well, yeah, no, it's because the reverb there and, you know, something about the, the, the presence of it. It's like, it's just well, a short little live re- reverb can mask certain, you know, certain problems in a vocal, which is why, like, when I'm listening back to vocals, when we're tracking them, I don't like to have the reverb on. Or right. maybe it's on just ever so slightly, just for a little felt presence. But I really want to hear exactly what's going, you know, to tape or to drive. Yeah. We still call, mm-hmm. I still like to call it to tape. even if Yeah. It's going to something magnetic. It's Yeah, to go into the recording uh, medium. <laughs> anyway, um... <laughs> You know, I, I really want to hear what's going on and not be fooled by having it dripping with reverb when we're in the tracking process because later on when you're mixing and then mastering, if there's if there's little artifacts or lip smacks, you know, this kind of stuff. Right. And I don't hear those, then those are going to come out later and cause all kinds of problems. It's a bit like at a live show. Everyone's had two beers, and so (laughs) you just sound that much better than you really do. Yeah, live is just so much different from recording. Then when you get in the recording, yeah. I mean, like, that's what people who are new at recording don't realize is how much different they sound than they think they sound. And again, they go, oh, I hear this and I hear that, and it's when you're doing it, you're not noticing it, but then you listen back and you're like, there are so many things that I would fix. That is why they call them a recording artist, is the art of recording. It's not just singing. You you have to know recording. I mean, you don't have to, but someone in the room has to. Well, it's a bit it's a bit like film acting. <laughs> film acting and stage acting are tremendously different. And that stage acting, you're you're projecting to an entire theater, and you're going to the back row. You're yeah. trying to get this bigness to it, and a lot of the close up stuff doesn't get seen. Or like the difference between close up magic and room, you know, big room magic. It's the same thing. Like when you record, it's like, you know, film acting, you have these little nuances of like you turn your eyebrow a little bit and the camera catches that on a close up mm-hmm. where it's not going to, you wouldn't catch that in a crowd shot, you know? And, right. And that's, that's, that's the art of recording is you're, you're in a room. You're in, and it's very intimate. The mic don't lie. <laughs> <laughs> when emotionally, it's very intimate as well. Yeah. That's, that's like, you know, that's why people relate to radio DJs, is, you know, in morning, because there's something about this person is in your car with you. There's this feeling of like intimacy that happens. And it's very true on a recording. Uh, what do you do to bring that out in an artist? Like, how do you coach an artist through that? Because it's obviously very vulnerable, number one. Well, I mean, a lot of the artists I work with at, at the level I'm working with have already honed their craft to where... It, it emanates from them. But to answer your question, I mean, there's all kinds of techniques to bring out that intimacy. And there, 
primarily psychological techniques. I'm not talking about engineering or recording techniques. Yeah. I'm talking about... Um, You're talking about the role of the producer. Yeah, drive, yeah, guiding and driving the performance and or not even saying a word because maybe they're on fire and there's no need to say anything because they're already delivering it and having the wisdom to know the difference uh, <laughs> comes with time. And then, you know, a, per, a person who's singing, and especially if it's a song that they wrote the lyrics to, which is often the case, has a very deep intimacy with that song. It's, it's their child. It's their baby. Or in many cases, it's our baby because I've collaborated with them on the writing. And what happens is a lot of times fear enters into the picture where the thinking is, oh my goodness, now I'm recording this song and whatever I do here is gonna be heard potentially by thousands or even millions of strangers who will judge me and my singing. Man, I'm closing up just hearing <laughs> this thing. <laughs> and I'll never and, and and I'll never meet these people, but they have so much control over my success. And what I'm gonna do right now into the microphone will be embossed in the minds, hearts, and brains of these listeners for the rest of the history of time. Now, when the thinking is like that. That's a lot of pressure to put on yourself. I, I call it red light syndrome. The moment <laughs> yeah. the red light comes on, it's like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so, and so there's a time when I have to come in and remind them that we're just capturing another take of what you already naturally do. You know, I have to remind them that we have all the time in the world and we can do multiple takes and we could even take different parts of the different takes and, and comp them or composite them together to create an overall performance. So what you're doing now isn't necessarily going to be that thing that lasts forever. Maybe it's just parts of it. Yeah. And, and so let's just relax and let things flow mm -hmm. and, and let the magic come out. And if the magic doesn't present itself that day, eh, We'll shut the session down early, go to the beach, and come back another day and do it. You know? Yeah. Well, you got to take the pressure off. <laughs> exactly. You got to really like kind of let I, the air I out of the balloon. took the scenic route to say, you know, take the pressure off. But well, but see, that's the, that's <laughs> the art and science of it is the part that people don't understand is we live in a very object-oriented world. Very. I want it now. Yeah. Well, and everything's, everything's got so much pressure on it. It's like, well, I got to do this. I got to make rent. I got to clock in. I got to get to work on time. I got to sit in traffic. I got to, you know, got to eat lunch. I got to have 20 minutes to eat lunch, you know, blah, 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 and everything. And to me, that's so counterproductive to art, like that whole Western, like hustle, you know, I mean, it can be yeah. really beneficial if you turn it around and use it as like a fire under your butt. But yeah, if but also if it's like, okay, we got we got one hour to lay down the vocals, and that's it. So go be perfect in an hour. Yeah, because I only have because only have <laughs> only have a hundred dollars in my wallet, you know, to pay for this one hour. Yeah, is it? Yeah, you'd be you'd be better off saving up more, or, or right, know, you know. Uh, there are so many be, other it should, ways. It should be fun. It should be emotional, whether it's emotional, you know, 
on an introspective or depressing or a dark side or it's emotional like get up and dance and party like you know like a weekend song or something like that you know it should it should just flow so yeah removing the pressure setting the environment is important too if they're singing a ballad turn the lights down and we light some candles kind of set the vibe let's say we're doing like a hardcore rap song well that's not going to be the vibe for like a hardcore rap <laughs> party song yeah. you know let's get up and party it's friday um or yeah, something like invite, that invite and, the friends to the studio you know in that, that case, case yeah, yeah you bring extra people in yeah. and you create a party environment and you have fun and you, <laughs> you, i mean you literally create a party funny story i was working on a song called first string boozers and <laughs> the guitarist was uh, having a little trouble with the solo and he wasn't so we went to the liquor store and we got some whiskey and uh, the chorus was literally i've got my whiskey and so we just i you know there was and here's the here's the caveat right so i gave him about two shots and i had about 15 minutes before he fell apart because <laughs> <laughs> everything after that was crap <laughs> oh, right right a little window but we there. got some really good you know i'd already gotten the stuff i'd coached him to do but it was just too a little too uptight a little too thought out and so yeah i got i got him on a couple shots of whiskey and then he loosened up a little bit we got some cool stuff and we comped it together and that made the take now here's another technique for relaxing somebody is you got to change the thought process so if what they're singing just isn't you know it you have to change their thought process so what i'll do sometimes is i'll say look we're going to do a couple experimental tracks and I just want you to do everything I say exactly as I ask without question. And I'll ask them to sing in unusual ways and do all kinds of unusual stuff. They may even be at the time second guessing their choice to hire me as their producer <laughs> <laughs> because it'll seem in the moment to them like sing is, the entire this chorus is, this and is, cat meows. Yeah, this is, yeah. <laughs> well, cause this is, this is so like, you know, so off base of what this song is about but they don't i don't tell them that i'm changing their thought process that, i i just do it that was the funniest thing and that's the whole point when is I, to do that when i first started working with you joe that was what i noticed is that you and i had some very similar self-acquired tricks that we did and so exactly that what i would do sometimes is just it would be uh you know it'd be a song that has some angst in it i'll be like okay take this song and imagine you're singing it to your best friend and they'd be like, what? I don't hate my best friend. Well, exactly. So think about if you if they did something so bad that pissed you off. And it just gets them to think because they're thinking about their boyfriend or they're thinking about who, however they wrote the song. And you just change it that little bit. And all of a sudden, what they'll do, it's to me, the, the, the magic in it is that they come up with something fresh. It's not yeah. always right. But when it's right, it's really right. And then you can sample that. And you can then take that as a jumping off point for... Or I'll, or I'll actually go ahead and make them angry. <laughs> like uh, sometimes, sometimes if they're overthinking, I will just have them do take after take after take and burn them out till they get so frustrated that they finally reach in deep and pull it together and deliver the magic. I've had that and, happen too. And, yeah. and then, I mean, they're cursing me, but they're still, they're cursing me in the moment at least in their heads, I'm sure. <laughs> but, and sometimes they're complaining. I've, I don't, I've been I don't see what this at. has to do with the song or why you're having me do this. Yeah. And I'm just like, just please trust me. And, you know, if worse comes to worse, if you don't like anything we do, oh, we won't use it in the final mix. 
but you know, just, just go ahead and do it. And, and I'll explain why later. And then later on, they deliver the magic and they'll walk out of the vocal booth and just go, thanks, Joe. Now I get it. Yeah. And then I can't use that technique on them anymore. so you have to have a lot of a lot of techniques it's i mean producing is like 90 percent psychological it's so true and you gotta be motivational and positive and and still be able to point out when something needs to change you have to build yeah, a lot well, of Yeah, trust. you don't want to be like, you know, that take really sucked. Um, <laughs> and, unless you're trying to get them angry, in which case right, then. you shouldn't say that. You should go ahead and say that. But um, you might say something like, hey, you know, on the third chorus, you sound so good that I know what you're capable of now with this song. So what do you say we go back to the first chorus and do it again? I know, I know you want to finish and be done with this. but you just sound so good on the third chorus that I think if we, if we redid the first chorus, we'd just have that much better of a performance. So we'll go back and capture the first chorus. And then I'll be like, you know what? Now we've got choruses one and three sounding great. Two isn't living up to the amazing vocal that you are capable <laughs> of doing. Right. And, and maybe I'm playing to the ego a little bit, mm-hmm. but it tends to be that way too. Because by the time you get to the third chorus, they're more warmed up and in the groove. Always. And, and so almost every vocal I've done has been recorded two or three times over. That and paradoxically. better and better and better. Always record the scratch take. Because that's oh, yeah. the one where they're not thinking. Right. And you get, yeah. the, you get the magic. So, yeah, that, that's another technique. <laughs> yeah. Hey, listen, I'm just getting tones on you, but please sing, you know, your regular performance so that I could dial in uh, the vocal sound appropriately. And they don't even know I'm recording. And I might not even tell them that I'm going to use that stuff until much later when it's mixing time. And I say, hey, you know, I got these warm-up takes that you did. Let's see if there's any magic there. And there's a lot of magic. There could be a lot of magic there. Yeah. I want to go back. Um, What we were talking about before with songwriting, I'm kind of curious where you learned all this stuff. I mean, when you started, you started writing songs and playing guitar. And how did you, I mean, presumably, I mean, the world looked a lot different in terms of recording studios back when you started. Um, now everything, now everybody has a studio in their laptop. Um, take us back in time a little bit and tell us a little bit how you started. It was all, it all emanated from the, the wisdom of my dad. Now, in high school, I was primarily focused on guitar, which is my primary instrument. Well, guitar and piano. And you're, you're and, a fantastic guitarist. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. I'll take my $20. <laughs> and, and, and when I moved to Hollywood, it was to become successful as like a guitarist in a band, you know, and the whole rock star thing. And this was like pre-Round Guns and Roses era? like. Well, I'm going, actually, I'm going back to when I was in high school. So we're talking about like around 1982. Okay. Okay. And... And, oh, I had a birthday coming up and my dad was like, what do you want for your birthday? And I said, there's this device, it's kind of expensive, but it's called a digital delay. (laughs) (laughs) And back then they were very expensive when they first came out. And I said, if I had a digital delay, there's lots of really cool stuff I could do on the guitar. And 
when it came time to open up my gift, there was no digital delay. There was a four-track recorder, a little Tascam cassette four-track recorder. No way. Called I had the Porta One. Oh, you had a Porta. I had a Porta Two. All right. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I'm like, Dad, this is not what I asked for. He goes, Yeah, but this will be this will be better for your career. <laughs> and man, I took to that thing. I never thought of being a producer, even knew what a producer did. Yeah. You know, but I I took to recording. You know, like I think became my new best friend, and and I would just in the following years record everything I could. I would record all kinds of styles and learn by doing. And then also I got a uh, internship, not an internship, I got a job, I guess you would say, uh, at a recording studio called Sounder Recording. Cause I had decided that if I'm really gonna wanna make good recordings, and at the time it was primarily just of my own band that I was interested in, not other people, I was like, I need to learn from the people who actually make records. So I decided that I would just go to every studio in LA and knock on their door and offer myself to work in any capacity just to be around it and to learn by observing. And as luck would have it, the very first door I knocked on uh, was a recording studio just about a mile from where I was living. And it was called Sounder Recording. And as luck would have it, the response from the uh, head engineer at the studio was like, I've been looking for an assistant and here you are looking, you know, offering yourself as one. Wow. So um, let's come in and talk about it. And he told me what's involved. And he said, basically you'll be the second engineer. And I was like, yeah, I'm in, I'm there. And I, like I called my parents that night, like so filled with pride. I was like, uh-huh. Your son is now officially a second engineer <laughs> at a broadcast quality professional 24-track recording studio. And they're like, oh my God. No tears in their eyes. And then soon I found out what second engineer means is that you're the Diet Coke go-getter, <laughs> the toilet cleaner, and mic boy. <laughs> oh, and there's no pay involved. Yeah. However, you do get to eat the leftover studio pizza Ooh. if there is any leftover. So there was that. <laughs> but no, the, the, the pay was experience and an education. And I met a lot of people through that quote-unquote job in fact I, I learned so much within about two years I surpassed where the first engineer was and moved on and um, I also learned a tremendous amount by listening to other records very proactively proactive listening not just putting something on in the background but like putting it putting on the headphones and really tuning into what is being done, where things are panned, how they're EQ'd, how they move, how producers arrange things and dynamics. And, you know, when I started to do proactive listening of records, I learned a tremendous amount. That doesn't surprise me because working with you, uh, the thing that stands out the most is your ear. You hear things that even I don't hear, and I've got a pretty good ear, and so it sounds like you kind of picked up on all these little things that people were doing, maybe more than they even knew they were doing them, and just sort of incorporated them into your lexicon of yeah, things I, to look for. I, I, I've, I've been blessed with a good set of ears. I, I tell my kids, your dad has super producer ears, so when you talk about it behind 
his back he can hear you <laughs> and they're like whatever dad and then like i would stick a mic in their bedroom <laughs> and they were like wow your ears really are good but then i'd have to be honest and say no here's what i did <laughs> check but, under the pillow yeah. check under the teddy bear but um but no I, I i do hear i do hear everything that's going on and that just comes with time mm-hmm. you know you spend 30,000 hours in a studio, you're going to hear a lot. And now when I listen to records from my youth, I hear all kinds of things going on. I could, I could even in my mind, see what the, like what the production technique was, how they achieved that. Or there might be sounds there that when I listen to this stuff as a kid, I never noticed it, but now it sticks out like a sore thumb or as a or sticks out like a beautiful face, you know. Um, that blew my mind going back and listening to some records that I dug as a teenager, and then listening to them going, "Ah, oh, this sounds awful." And then you have to then you get then you forget about the sound contour, and then you're into it again. It's just exactly like well, yeah, like back in the day, because when records, actual physical records, vinyl LPs, vinyl yeah. LPs. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> um, were the medium that everyone was was listening on you could only have so much bass in the mix because inside the groove are little bumps and the more bass the bigger the bump well if the bump got too big the needle would actually jump off the record and you get the skipping sound so so but nowadays we can have so much more bass and subs in the mix because of the medium right when i listen to old records there's a lot of techniques you can hear you you could just learn so much because back back like in the 60s and 70s so much had to go in to create unique sounds it wasn't something where you just pulled up a patch and i'm not saying you know, I'm not knocking pulling up patching. I'm all, I, hey, I'm all for clicking a button, and if it sounds good quickly, great. <laughs> well, but the studio at that point had sort of become its own instrument, is the way I look at it. Yeah, like, and I kind of post Phil Spector. Phil Spector kind of started that whole thing. The I, wall I, of sound. I definitely look at the mixing board as one of my primary instruments too. Yeah, and you know, mixes like the one that we're currently working on are real are real dynamic. Meaning you don't just set one level for the vocal and then that's it for the song. Right. You do it part by part, but actually we do it word by word or syllable by syllable. And, and if you were to look at the faders, well, we're in the box now, so we don't really see that. But, but, but back you, when they were motorized. Yeah. When you look at the flying faders of yesteryear uh, for, for one of my mixes, you would see tiny little motion and movement on all the faders throughout the song. Right. And that's because of that perfectionism I was talking about since automation came along. I mean, that's, that's, that was such a blessing because prior to automation, I used to have an army of people help me with a mix and we'd have to get it perfect you have to choreograph Every time. all the moves exactly. and rehearse them and rehearse We'd them. We'd choreograph them and rehearse them. And we, I had, I had tape marks and Sharpie marks 
yeah. uh, color-coded so that each person's moves were their color. We practice <laughs> it. And it, I mean, it never failed. We'd get like a perfect take. And then at the very end, I, I would mess up the fade or something like that <laughs> and fade it too quickly. All of a sudden, I'm like, oh, we're going to have to start over. See, that's another thing I miss <laughs> is hand fades at the end of songs. Like, I feel like there's an art form to fading out on a track. Oh, definitely. I, I, got, I got a friend, uh, he works on TV music a lot, and they're under such time pressure every week that they, they, wouldn't, they wouldn't spend time on a fade. But it's the last thing people hear in the song. It should have some sort of emotional impact on the listener. Well, that's what I was thinking is there's a large, there's a large emotional component to all this human effort that goes into it. And somehow it feels like there's, there's something that's imparted by that attention to detail that you wouldn't get otherwise. If something were just, I know you just gave a panel at NAMM and you were talking about the future of AI music. So literally algorithms are analyzing music and then saying, okay, this is what the style is defined by, and then spitting out original quote unquote compositions. (laughs) And uh, to me, that's, that's kind of mind blowing. And also at the same time, you kind of wonder almost like Daniel Pink says that the, the jobs of the futures are going to be the ones that can't be automated. Yeah. And and unfortunately, musician, songwriter, performing artist is one of those jobs that is fairly protected from the grasp of AI. You say jobs, but we're not making or any money. Li- jobs or living or source of income. Source of, yeah, know, that's that's the part that, you know, that I think is worrying everybody. Is well, like there. truck drivers, they're not going to have a job in 10 years. It's going to be all automated trucking yeah. and, and driverless. But people still want to see live performances. Yeah. Although there, there's even like hologram performances hologram, now, yeah. things like that. But for the most part, people... You know, if you're worried about AI taking over completely as a musician, singer, songwriter, you're, you're, you're safe. It's going to become a tool to help you create. So are it's we, not going to do the job for you. So are we in this intermediary, intermediary period where things are going to look drastically different in five years from now, 10 years from now? Things, things aren't, don't look like they did in the 90s, 80s. Musically, I mean, what, what I obviously, I mean, I was listening to an interview with Lior Cohen, who uh, was a founder of or one of the CEO of Def Jam. And he was saying that if they had not forced him out, he would have stayed in until the date of the interview was like 2017. And he said, it is just now from 2000 to 2017, 18, whenever they were doing that interview, it was just now starting to recover from the Napster days. Like he basically he he basically was saying i was lucky i got forced out because i would have ridden this whole thing through the through the valley right so i mean where are we what what where do you see this i mean how how do you see musician how do you see music be being sustainable or are we just all going to be on ubi anyway and so then we have more available time for what's what's ubi universal basic income oh yeah um (laughs) oh well, that gets into a political area. And if there's one thing that I've learned very early in my career is that two things, two things you never discuss in entertainment are politics and religion. And uh, at least, you know, I'll leave that to the professionals who do that. I'm here to entertain. I'm here to move people through my music and through the music of others that I, that I produce. 
I'm here to help aspiring music professionals achieve music success. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, to be fair, I think that is probably one of the areas in the show that I tend to not veer into is the political, because I think it's a point where people start talking about the ideology instead of about the reality of whatever is happening. And so I know that that has been kind of an interesting, uh, an interesting thing from an economic perspective is to look at just the idea of disruption. And so we talked about the Porta 2 and the Porta 1, and we talked about the home studio and the laptop and how things are changing. But the constant seems to be the human element. Yeah, that's why, that's why if you're worried about AI taking over music, I wouldn't worry too much. I do see it kind of taking over film and TV cues, which for a while was the thing that the holy grail that everybody's going after is like, oh, sync your music. But I can see like reality shows just going, okay, give us a bed. We just need, you know, we want to, oh, we don't want to pay royalties on it. Let's just use an AI. Yeah. Well, I mean, where, where AI is now in terms of music, it's, it basically is taking the music that you feed it. We'll call it data or data points. And it's learning from it to recreate it in a different way, but not in a new way. It is not yet gotten to the point, and I don't think it will for a very long time, where it creates something fantastically different and new because it's basing all its decisions on what it's given and then putting out some version of an amalgamation of all that. But in a way, don't you think that we are kind of doing that musically? What do you mean? Aren't we sort of taking everything we've ever heard, where we grew up, our sound from from our neighborhood, whatever, you know, what we like, what we listen to, what our parents listen to, and sort of amalgamating that into something, quote unquote, new? Well, we're amalgamating it into something new, not to a different version of what already is. That's the difference. Okay. Now, someday, far in the future, who knows? Uh I mean, I'll be long dead by then. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think that's also the difference is that recorded music is only, what, 110 years old, 120 at this point, right? So that sort of changes things because we're listening to, we can go back and listen to historical recordings from the 19-teens and hear what they were doing then where now all those people are dead and... I think that has to have some impact on modern music. As I'm, we're still listening to The Wall as if it happened yesterday. I mean, you can pull it up and just listen to The Wall, and it That's still sounds record. like The Wall. That's a great record. You know, I noticed we've been talking a lot about a lot of classic songs and records, but just, just to say this, I think it's important to keep up and to listen to what's going on now, not to emulate it, because if you emulate it, by the time you finish the record and the label sets up a marketing campaign, it's going to be two years later. And your old news, <laughs> if you're producing today's sound today, by the time it comes out, it's old news. But it, you still got to keep up and hear what other people are doing. Again, just just to learn what's out there. There's no way you can know it all. And there's a lot of really great ideas out there that you can take and then maybe twist and make your own by putting your own spin on it. Well, and it all comes and, back to emotion, right? Because the emotion is what makes it authentic. And that's ultimately, I think, what people are hopefully relating to in your music is Yeah, so until, until AI gets to the point where it emulates emotions, 
and it probably will someday, but until it gets there, the emotional component is still coming from from us. I think that's the authenticity as well. You know, and yeah. there's there's also legal ramifications. Let's say AI creates an entire an entire song and then I go record it. Who owns the publishing for that song? Am I the writer? Because I pushed it because I fed some data points into AI and then hit return? Or <laughs> is the company that created the AI the writer? Who owns that intellectual property? These are I mean, these are there are also legal ramifications that have to be yeah, figured out. Yeah, and when you end well. up with a blurred lines lawsuit, then who do you Ugh. sue? Right, which was a terrible uh, precedent, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, for anyone who doesn't know, it was a lawsuit where, where if you replicated the vibe of another record, right. you were plagiarizing, and that's that is that absurd. is a dangerous slippery slope. That is absurd. I <laughs> I was really disappointed with that verdict. Yeah, agreed. Because you know, like, you know, there's there's a hundred hit songs out there that are three the same three chords a one four five progression in some way you know louis louis wild thing mm -hmm. i could go on and on yeah. but uh to say you stole my vibe <laughs> it just sounds so ridiculous <laughs> you plagiarized my vibe well it all comes down to, <laughs> you know. to dollars now i'm in a tangent here for a second so i found a photo of when i worked on inception and I think that uh, I think that the NDA has expired at this point. I don't know. I don't think I kept a copy of it, but um, it's a photo of Warren Wilshire, Mid Wilshire, in uh, downtown LA, and there's a giant freight train running down the middle of the avenue. <laughs> so oh, I have a yeah. picture of this giant freight train, which was literally a uh, semi truck that had been they had built this wood thing around it to make a, a train run down the middle of the street. I remember this. I remember that scene. Yeah. So the reason I bring this up is because I know that you're a huge Christopher Nolan fan. Yeah, he's he's really a good director. Inception was great. I mean, just about all his movies are great. My personal favorite of his and just my current personal favorite movie, even though it came out in 2014 and it's 2020 now, is Interstellar. And so much went into that movie and it was a movie that I thought struck the perfect balance of music that was appropriate for the movie and that also stands on its own as an incredible piece of work. In fact, um, I, I emailed, or I'm sorry, I Facebooked Hans Zimmer. <laughs> um, there's like, there's a site, a uh, Facebook page called Hans, Hans Zimmer and Friends. I think it is. And just on the off chance that he ever looked at it, because I've never met him personally, I said, Hans, Hans, Hans last night, I almost said Han, like Han Solo. <laughs> 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 I, I get a lot of Han Solo jokes. So that, anyway, uh, that name's always in my head. Uh, but I, I, I said, Hans, last night, I spent the entire night listening to the Interstellar soundtrack I can say with full conviction, it's the most beautiful music I've ever encountered. And he actually wrote back or he replied and he said, thanks, Joe. Now get yourself some sleep. <laughs> and then he signed it 
HZ, you know, Hans Zimmer, but uh-huh. then he added a bunch of extra Zs for sleep. So it's H Z Z Z Z Z. So uh, I made a copy. I made a took a screenshot of that and saved it in my favorites, and mm-hmm. that's that's neat. You know, I got I got my Hans Zimmer moment there. But um, that was a beautiful soundtrack. Oh, yeah. There's a great making of that someone posted on YouTube that has Hans there with the other recording engineers and producers while they're recording in an abbey in England, the pipe organ for that. Oh yeah. Yeah. With this amazing, uh, organ player, which is the predominant instrument in that whole soundtrack. Oh, it's so stunning. Um, and they were actually at uh, temple church is where that organ is. <sighs> yeah. It's just mind blowing. It sounds so good. Well, the movie was interesting, too, because the tone of the movie and the pacing of the movie was very, it was unique, for one thing. I in mean, what way? Well, in terms of space movies, you know, I guess it kind of harkened back to more the pacing of like a 2001 A Space Odyssey than well, yeah, like that, a Star Wars. That, 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 that was his homage to 2001. 2001 you know, one of Christopher Nolan's not only favorite, but most influential movies. And that's his 2001. And, um, you know, there's, there's a story about how he went to Hans prior to even starting the shooting of the film and said, you know, I want you to do the music for another movie of mine, another movie of mine, but I'm not going to tell you anything about it. I just want you to write some music that, that somehow emotes the special relationship between the bond between father and child. And you can think about your own bond with your, your children to inspire you. And I want you to just take what I've just said and come up with a piece of music. Then they used that piece of music as sort of inspiration when they started shooting the film and, and all the music grew from there. So the, you know, the music, typically in a film, the music is like the last thought and you yeah. got just a little time to slap it together. In this case, the music was an integral component from before the shooting began. That's incredible. I was and, thinking and of that. It really worked out. I was thinking of that story as well. And I was thinking about how you were talking about sometimes playing tricks on your artist. I feel like that was a very wise move on Christopher's part because one of the things that I, I, I love Hans Zimmer. One of my favorite soundtracks of all time is the Gladiator soundtrack. Oh, that's a great one. But then I noticed that like Black Hawk Down, he took, basically sampled some of the stuff from Gladiator and reused a bunch of stuff. Uh-huh. And, and he works on a lot of movies. I mean, respect to Hans Zimmer. Uh, but I think it was really smart to give him that writing prompt and not tell him it was a space movie, for example. Yeah, otherwise it might come out kind of electronic. And, and, and the whole movie, even though it's a science fiction movie, it's really about familial connection. You know, it was George Lucas who said a long time ago that the music is half the movie. True. Or music and the sound, because sound design is important. Yeah. And and that's what inspired George Lucas to have some people develop the THX sound system in movie theaters. Because right. he felt not enough uh, respect was being given to the audio and that... that the movie going experience could be drastically enhanced by having it sound a lot better. That's right. Yeah. And it's, it's amazing how 
far that has come. I think now oh, yeah. every single theater made has thousands and thousands of watts of sound. Then you can hear it from outside. It's, you know, it's coming from the, the doors. Well, you know how, you know how earlier I was telling you how I, I, I learn a lot just by listening to other records. I also learn a lot by listening to movies especially you learn about composing because composing music for a movie is different from making music for a song with a song you're expressing what you want to express when you're making music for a movie you're actually a co-storyteller along with the other creatives in the movie and you're the musical component of telling that story and it's the music that tells the audience how to feel on any particular scene. So let's say you have like a Batman movie and just imagine a scene where uh, the Joker is killing all these people and he's laughing the whole time. If the score is really dark and horrific, you feel the horror that these people are feeling getting shot. But if you put on some kind of circus music behind it, you feel the joy and the folly and frolic that the Joker is feeling by killing people with a gun. Exactly. You know, and, um, or however he's killing them. And that's how important the music in a film is. I've done a little bit in various films, and I've learned so much from listening to how music is used in a film to drive the story forward and to command a certain emotional response from the audience. So if that's your thing, that's what your job is, is to help tell the story, not to express yourself musically and show off your chops or to express what you want. Your job is to enhance what the director wants. Right. Your storyteller, you're kind of like a co-director. Mm-hmm. And you're important. That's really cool. Well, so much comes down to mood. Yeah. So I, so much comes down to moving people and making them feel something. Yeah, like let's say someone's singing or a player's playing, a session player's playing in the studio. If I have to choose between a technically perfect take and one that's not technically perfect but is dripping with vibe, I'll take the vibe take every time. Yeah. Well, because there's also now certain things that can be done to uh, lift that up, you know, if there's a, if there's a, didn't quite hit that high note, but the, everything else was there, you can sort of just a little bit. Yeah. 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 I don't like to rely on auto tune. If I do any tuning, I actually go in syllable by syllable and manually tune it. Yeah, me too. Um, That's, I actually don't even try and tune for the quote unquote correct note. I try and tune it with the music and feel. Yeah. It's it's all, it's, it's, it's so that you can. You keep the humanity in it, yeah. the original humanity, by by doing it chunk by chunk. It it's it takes a lot longer mm-hmm. and a lot of precision. I mean, I get surgical with this stuff. Like I said, once you got it there, it takes no extra effort to keep it perfect. Yeah. So you might as well put in the effort up front to make it as great as possible. Now, uh, it's really an honor to have you here and, and just to get to rap with you about life and music and all those things. But um, I know you. we got to get back to some mixing. However, <laughs> I would be remiss if I, uh, on behalf of the audience if I didn't ask you a little bit about uh, some of the celebrities you've worked with and, you know, whatever you, what have you care to share about 
maybe, I mean, from my perspective, they're just people. But they're people who have a lot of pressure on them in ways that most normal folks will never understand. Yeah, people think if you're successful, you don't have any problems. You have problems that successful people have. Or if you're rich, you don't have any problems. No, then you have rich people problems. Uh, you know, everyone's got problems. Uh, everyone's a human being, and you're right on that. But in this industry, credentials are very important. They, right. they really are. Well, just to rattle off a few, I mean, I developed Macy Gray from scratch, musical director for Michael Jackson's live birthday extravaganza at the Neverland Ranch. And I got a ton of great stories from that, but that's a whole nother podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh boy. I've had music that I've written and or produced played on every major, you know, broadcaster pretty much on the planet, actually. Um, I've had I've like thousands of placements and that's, that's primarily due to the fact that, that I had a uh, really good publisher getting the music out there. And I also, I mean, you can go to my website if you want to really see a whole list of credits at joesolo.com. Well, you've worked but, with Fergie, you've worked with uh, Macy Gray, you worked with, as you mentioned, Michael Jackson. As yeah, and shiny, shiny toy guns and, um, a whole, whole, whole bunch of people. Um, but I bring up my website for another reason. And that's because if you go there, there's free tips. I give out these free tips every week they, that are emailed. And I also have a series called the music success video nuggets. Doesn't cost anything. You just sign up with your email and every a couple of times a week, you'll get some great advice that you could put to use on your music career right away. And that's at joesolo.com. I also send out discounts for various events that I do, like retreats and one-on-one -on -one consulting. And, uh, of course, producing, I do that as well. I try and give people a lot of motivation and inspiration to hang in there because music, the music industry is tough. And the road to music success is lined with broken hearts. But if you could find it within you, regardless of how heartbroken you might feel at any given moment to just keep pressing on, just, you know, never, ever quit is, is pretty much my motto. Don't quit ever. Stay on it. You don't want to be on your deathbed going, oh, I wonder if I'd put more effort into this had my life turned out more like I wanted it. You don't want to think like that, have to think like that when you're at your end. You want to feel... Like you did your best. Some make it, some don't. Luck is a large component, but there's so many things that you could do to tip the luck factor to your benefit. And those are the kinds of things, as well as just hands-on practical advice that I, that I send out on these emails. And then the other thing when you sign up for the email list is you also get my list of the nine music career killing mistakes and how to avoid them. So that's, that's some good information that I think people should know. And that's at joesolo.com. Thank you for letting me plug that. <laughs> Absolutely. I was going to ask you for plugs at the end anyway. But oh, there uh, it is. Joe, it's an honor to work with you and to uh, have you in the I Create Sound podcast studio for a short little interview. Hope that whatever you're working on is ridiculously successful 
And, I know how you feel. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we'll catch you next time. All right. Thanks, thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the show with your host, Stephen Levin. As always, you can find everything we talked about in the show notes. Make sure to subscribe here and follow our Instagram to stay updated about new releases. This is the Language of Creativity podcast. Just